welcome to Thoughts on Money, what we like to call Tom. Uh, this is our once a month podcast where we collect the articles that were written for the month and we go a little bit of a deeper dive and just kind of ad hoc conversation about the things that we discussed this month. And we are live here with David Bonson to discuss Thoughts on Money. Well, Trevor, it's good to be with you. I'm not. I'm not going to be discussing. I'm here to hear. Have you discuss it? You've written a lot of good stuff here. We got to get into this. I appreciate it. I uh, look forward to your questions, and I'm sure some of them will be challenging. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. There, in, I, when I was reviewing all these different articles, there, there's such different topics. It's such a variety of different things in the whole orbit of financial planning and and kind of basic, you know, investing principles. And, and I think hopefully readers are benefiting from the fact that it is not a one-note, you know, uh, web property that you're addressing a whole lot of different things. How, how do you go about picking the topics that you write about each week? I very much enjoy the Dividend Cafe. And I think for me, the Dividend Cafe is a great place to catch up on current events and to get the Bonson Group's perspective on those current events. Kind of what I'm trying to accomplish on Tom is um, maybe pieces that are a little bit more evergreen, um, a little bit more focused on the financial planning side. And honestly, the the subject ideas just come to me throughout the week. Sometimes I wake up at two in the morning, grab my phone, put notes down. Um, a lot of them come from conversations with clients. Uh, you start to get things that are thematic and you look at those things and say, hey, I really should capture this in an article and maybe give that advice. That way someone has a go-to place. Um, or perhaps it's a conversation I'm not going to have with somebody and they can be influenced by the article. So that's kind of uh, where the birthplace is for a lot of these. You know, it's funny. I, I uh, can think back to when I was first writing what we now call Dividend Cafe. I used to just call it weekly market commentary. But when you when you mentioned clients bringing stuff up, that's really how they were how the old investment commentaries I was doing were always uh, drafted was was quite real life questions from clients. It got to a point where I had to kind of create a more intentional uh, direction for it. The client's questions became fewer and far in between, and it left me without fodder <laughs> to, to write about. But but when you're writing, see, see the Dimming Cafe has got this like real specific investment theme, but you have so many uh, practical financial planning issues you're addressing each week that uh, clients will never have a shortage of these kinds of questions. So I think it's really actionable stuff. Yeah, I heard uh, one writer from a, a financial uh, news outlet say that the hardest part about his job is that he has to write about four, five, six different uh, investment truths for his whole career, and he has to figure out a different way to say them over and over yeah. again. Yeah, I guess that's true probably a lot of things in life, though, that uh, there's a few different principles. It could be three, it could be ten, depending on whatever, but um, the application goes on forever, so you have to kind of reposition it. Well, let me walk through the ones you wrote. The thoughts on money, the various uh, weekly editions you did in the month of July, and and have you unpack a few things. You wrote you wrote a piece at the beginning of July, and you titled it "Never Say Always," and you set up around your friend Reggie. Now, so is Reggie uh, the name changed to protect the guilty or the innocent? To protect the innocent, there is no Reggie, but there is a Reggie-like person. Okay, so the the avatar is a real person, but the name is is changed. Exactly, because I thought maybe it was like Reggie Jackson. And I said, you know, people are going to figure this out. But okay, 
Um, well, well, give me the kind of gist uh, of the article. You, you're talking about a friend, who, or uh, in this case, someone says stocks always outperform bonds, and you went through and kind of unpacked the the empirical statement in it, and then and then gave a little conclusion out of it. Maybe recap that for us. Yeah, definitely. So I think the the real premise of the article is that. Um, I come across people that have some level of interest in the markets. They read something here, they read something there, um, and along the way they pick up a few of these things and they keep them as um, what they believe to be extreme truths. This is always happening or this never happens. And I think anytime you use those words, you start to get yourself in trouble. The comparison I used this time was, um, you know, there's a little bit of an attitude out there. Jeremy Siegel wrote that book, Stocks for the Long Run. So some people have this attitude that, hey, if I'm going to invest longer than 10 years or even 10 years, I need to be in an all-stock portfolio. Um, and the kind of the argument that I'm making, and we talked about this a little offline, is that there is this benefit of diversification um, to owning stocks and bonds. But even furthermore, just to kind of maybe in a goofy way to, to, to put it in the face of the argument, I, I use some examples of times that bonds outperform stocks because um, regardless of the reasoning, it has happened. Well, and that, okay, so we start with the correction of just misunderstood premises. There are times when stocks have underperformed bonds. Uh, let's say that you had a crystal ball and you knew that from point A to point B, uh, let's call it 10 year period, from point A is right now, point B is 10 years from now. And you know that stocks are going to achieve a return uh, in line with the historical average of about 9% a year, uh, pre-tax, pre-inflation. And, and the bonds were going to um, achieve a return of about 4 or 5%, which, which would be in line with the historical average, but is actually probably higher than, they would, when, than we would project them to perform based on where interest rates are. But let's say you, just, that you knew those things were going to happen. Would you make an argument that knowing those two things, stocks outperform bonds over the next 10 years, that there is um, still a reason to own bonds in an asset allocation? Yeah, definitely. And I want to know if my reason is different than yours. But um, I think my reason is kind of why I'd give Reggie that same advice, is that when we look at things from a starting point and an end point, um, that's very academic. It's very ideal to say, hey, this is the optimal outcome. But along the way, what are the drawdowns? Did that stock portfolio draw down 50%? and could Reggie withstand that. So I think um, it's not realistic to put an investor on a roller coaster that they don't have the stomach to ride. So for me, I, I would say that that matters. And then also the aspect of uh, just that, depending on how much income they need to draw from the portfolio, if, if the fixed income is additive to the yield, I think that matters as well. What say you? Uh, no, I agree with it. I would add, even though I think that the primary reasons one you're getting to, though, which is investor psychology. Now, some would say, "Hey, if you're going to use a ridiculous enough uh, hypothetical to pretend you know what the uh, asset cost return will be for ten years, you may as well be ridiculous enough to assume you know that the investor psychology will just bear with it," uh, which is fair enough because we don't know. But the fact of the matter is that that yeah, investor behavior and investor comfort level along the way. Um, is still the primary reason why you're trying to temper that outcome. And, if, and, and it's, I would argue that that's not just true with the inclusion of bonds in portfolio, but in theory, if one says, I'm going to take the past performance of major asset classes, and all I want to do is take whatever is going to be the highest performer over the last long period of time into the future, then there's no real reason to own large cap stocks either. 
because small cap stocks have outperformed large cap stocks. So it's differences of degree. Now, the, the, the delta between small cap and large cap is much smaller than it is between stocks and bonds. But the point being that we all intrinsically understand that comfort level has to be married to performance expectations and performance needs and that we're really managing on the psychology of what various outcomes will be. But what I would add to it is not merely the investor psychology, but the point in the cycle. You say, I don't need this money for 10 years, and one's going to outperform the other. But then in our hypothetical, we didn't say that you might not have an emergency in the sixth year, and stocks could be in a 40% drawdown at that period of time. So bonds are always providing a buffer, not just psychologically, but even economically, liquidity and things like that. Yeah, I think I mentioned somewhere in the article uh, the importance, uh, and it might have been one of the others, but that like academic research doesn't have weddings. You know, academic research doesn't have uh, these life things that happen that you didn't expect. And that's what's very difficult about taking some of those things and just applying what is academic to somebody's real life situation. What is Yogi Berra's exact line? It was in theory, it's true, but in practice, he has a distinction between in theory and practice. It's a typical Yogi Bear thing. It's real clever and kind of like, I just can't remember the exact wording. But something that's really what you're getting at here is a, a play on Yogi Bear's famous line that this is something that can be true in theory, but in practice it isn't as much. And and he kind of re, you know reverses that a little bit. But yeah, and the, the thematic thing I see with clients, um, which might not be the focus of this article, but it, it was the premise of it is that they come up with these little one-line truths that they think are absolute, and then they build a whole philosophy around it, and and a philosophy that, um, one, is not uh, absolutely true, and two, can be detrimental to their financial plan. Um, so I, I, that's that was kind of uh, what I took from the Reggie situation, and it uh, goes back to that idea of the value of diversification. So then you come back the next week, and we've dealt with Reggie. He put some bonds in his portfolio, uh, he, you know, you the issue of diversification gets addressed, but then you wrote a really interesting piece about the right way to shop for a financial advisor, and you kind of go through the different questions that you recommend an investor may want to ask a prospective advisor before they were they were to hire their services. Uh, tell me how you went about selecting these questions. Yeah, definitely. So. If I did a Google search on questions you should ask your financial advisor, you're going to find a whole lot of overlap. So I looked at that overlap, and I looked at some of those questions, and some of them were good. But what I wanted to think was, hey, knowing what I know about the industry and the financial advisors I've interacted with, what are six, seven questions that I'd want to ask that people probably won't find somewhere else? Um, and, and yeah, there could be some overlap with what you search, but I thought these questions were, were somewhat unique. And again, um, the motivation behind it, and I made a joke about it, is people will spend more time on consumer reports and uh, Amazon reviews on the next blender that they're going to purchase than they'll spend on their advisor. How do you think most people select their advisor? Do you think most people are doing it in the way that a consumer selection would take place? Or do you think it's mostly a professional referral? I think it's a referral. I think introduction from someone that they trust. Yeah, introduction from somebody they trust, or um, and I'm interested to know what your experience is with this. But I see a lot of like brother-in-laws, fraternity brother, um, helped my parents, kind of uh, just the familiarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that um, 
it's interesting. They're they're I think the higher up in in affluence and sophistication that people have, the more likely the introduction is to come from a less personal introduction and a more uh, professional mm-hmm. one, an estate planning attorney, uh, a tax advisor, a business colleague. But um, especially for people kind of getting started, it might be their first engagement with an advisor. I think of often brother-in-law, things like that. Um, but you, you, I'm going to go through a couple of questions you thought would be good to ask. The first one was, how do you get paid? And I'm wondering why you led with this. Why, why make that the first question? Well, I kind of, in the opening sentence, I said, you probably don't want to lead off with this question just because uh, it would probably be an awkward interaction. But, um, you know, some time ago, I, people can criticize this book, but I read that book, Freakonomics. And one thing that stuck with me from the book is this idea of that incentives drive behavior. Um, and I think it's an important thing to look at in any situation that you're in to see, hey, what is the incentive for this person to recommend this versus that? And kind of how are they in my best interest? Um I'm personally shopping for a home right now, and as I'm interacting with real estate agents on both sides, uh, I ask that question a lot. And to be honest, in that industry, I, I have seen a lot of conflict. So um, I think it's a good way to, to settle. Um, once you know how somebody gets paid, usually you can follow the money trail to kind of get an idea of where the advice is coming from. And and so it's interesting. I think a lot of times people would say you want to ask questions around the compensation advisor. And yet they're saying one one advisor charges one percent, another advisor charges 0.8. and so it's a way of getting to whoever the lesser cost, the lower cost is. You're not really going at that necessarily. Mm. You're going at the structure of the compensation. Yes, definitely the structure. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I've had a lot of clients recently, um, or, or new prospective clients reach out to me, and they're describing how they've built this portfolio, and they're kind of like giggly and happy about it like this is this is going to be the cheapest portfolio you've ever seen and they put so much focus on finding hey how could i create the the lowest possible expense ratio that they throw out everything else that's important about investing like what you actually own yeah um so so do you mind if i share my, a little nugget of my experience that i like to say with people on, of course on <laughs> um there are two advisor comp levels okay so structurally i'm 100 with you it has to be one that it provides alignment with the client's best interest. If it were the most ethical person who ever lived, the structure still needs to provide alignment. Not only because incentives drive behavior, which is a fundamental tenet of classical economics, but not just freakonomics. No, it almost, it's almost like Stephen got that from 250 years of, of <laughs> maybe Adam uh, pre- Smith preceding uh, uh, economic literature, but but. Not that's very true in and of itself, but also because even when the alignment is not necessary because of the angelic character of the advisor, it's important that the client feel the alignment at those moments of tension in, of in capital markets. So it provides that psychology. But I always say if you find someone who is – there are two price levels I want you to avoid. One who is really overpriced, one is really underpriced. There's no advisor providing services who's deeply underpriced that you want to engage with. You go, oh, I get a chance to save a lot of money. And so I will just come back to an analogy I've used many times as a connoisseur of Chinese food. I have spent money for a Chinese buffet at a little place off the 10 freeway that will remain nameless where it was $3.99. And I have eaten quite a bit in New York City at Shunli Palace in Upper West Side. And one of them was a lot more expensive than the other. And I know why. 
<laughs> Wait, are you telling me you like Chinese food? I do like Chinese food, but uh, I did you I, have Chinese food today? I did not. Okay, no. Uh, the the uh, the whole summer dieting thing, you know, is killing me. But not a lot of fried rice, compound chicken this summer. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, I I think that you you make a great point on alignment incentive. But then that kind of that kind of opens up the door to the whole fiduciary thing. So you talk about how many clients you serve, what services you provide, investment philosophy, response time. That's a bit more operational or practical. Who else will be assisting me? That's more operational, logistical. But a lot of these things are getting to the fiduciary concept. Maybe unpack fiduciary a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, you'd be better at defining it than me, but I think if you look at it from a legal standpoint, it's somebody that's acting in your best interest. And I've liked the way that it's described this way. Um, many people don't know that there are people in the finance industry that don't have to act in their best interest. That um, Most people do not. Exactly, and that if they um, come up with a, a viable solution for somebody and they have two different products that they can use to um, create that solution – that they can present to that person the one that pays a higher commission. Um, and I don't think that that poses a good relationship between an advisor and a client. And I actually don't think anybody would take the other side of that argument. So I think your starting point has to be fiduciary. And I will say this, are there non-fiduciaries that act like fiduciaries? Yes, there are. But like, I, like you, you mentioned is that there will be a point of tension and having that foundation that somebody is a fiduciary, I think will be fruitful. Uh, so I know the answer, but I think it's good to unpack this a bit because we're such advocates of fiduciary standard. And and so obviously, if you say you want someone who's really competent and a fiduciary, that's what you want. But what if you had to pick between a fiduciary and incompetent versus a competent non-fiduciary? Now, I guess the answer is it's a false dilemma because you just keep looking until of course. you find one who checks all the boxes. But um, where you know there are a lot of fiduciary advisors who are incompetent. How do you measure in this piece here, not just alignment of interest, but competence, but, but qualification to do the job? It's a great question. I think I might have left that question out in here. This isn't perfect for your answer, but I do think that question number four about what your investment philosophy is, I think it matters because I know a lot of financial advisors. I'm friends with a lot of financial advisors. A lot of them don't have an investment philosophy. A lot of them are going to go with something that sounds interesting, that they feel like they can quote-unquote sell. And when that doesn't work, guess what? They're going to find something new. So I think when you start to unpack the investment philosophy, I think that's going to give you a good idea of somebody's competency. And there is something to be said um, about somebody that's stuck to the same philosophy for 15 or 20 years. Um, I think that is, uh, I think that matters. Somebody that publishes a book about it. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that um, I agree with you completely, and and it is that is actually a really good way of filtering one's competence because a lot of times when you ask, and I do this just in a B two B sense, like I'm talking to other of course quote unquote professionals, and you get a chance to sort of gauge their level of sophistication, and and a lot of times they do not share with me they have investment philosophy, and it's one I disagree with. They share with me things that reveal they have no investment philosophy whatsoever. They have a revenue philosophy. And um, they're generally likable people. They're good to hang out with. They're so have strong social skills, so they can function and survive in the business. But uh, the reason they don't lead with a discernible investment philosophy is because they don't have one. 
And sometimes I joke about uh, the shame that they don't teach economics in college anymore. And then I go, but actually, that's only the second worst thing. The worst thing is if they actually did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, because God forbid if you had to hear what, they're re- what they'd be teaching. Of course. Um, I think that if we had to listen to, what, 70, 80, 90 percent, I don't know, of investment professionals share their uh, uh, financial advisors, share their investment philosophy, I think it would be frightening. It would be very frightening. Um, and I think it, the funny thing about this article is that uh, – we end up talking, a lot of people reach out to us um, after reading the content and things like that. They're interested in being a client. Probably the last three I've talked to went back and read this article and said, let me ask you some of these questions. And huh. it was fun to answer, be on the other side. The the kind of funny one was um, my calendar got messed up and I ended up being like 30 minutes late for a phone call. And he was like, well, I guess you you missed that response time, didn't you? <laughs> so Was he saying it in a humorous way? Yeah, or a he, he was yeah. really nice. He, he, he ended up becoming a client, but it was funny because uh, I was a little bit late and he said, give me time to read this article on the questions I should ask. And you've already failed one of these questions. You know, you know what I kind of took away a little bit from the article, more like biographical at Bonson Group? Is and, and there's a lot of humility in this, but I was just thinking, I, I agree with all the questions. I agree that the client needs to identify answers that kind of help meet their need. And, and it is true, very candidly, that I think the Bonson Group is really well positioned in what our answers would be for a lot of potential clients because we're very competitive fee-wise. We offer a high-quality process. We manage our, our household to a level that really is within our capacity to deliver an experience. Our services are, are vastly more expansive than most of our competitors. Um, service time. And then the who else will be assisting me. We have this big team. There's a lot of people that have real hands-on relationship with clients. And then we have a lot of other resources. And yet, you know, it's funny, Trevor. I bet you can relate to this. I wouldn't have been able to say all that earlier in my career. You know, like 20 years ago, it, who else will be assisting me? Well, me or myself. Or I, you know, it was it – was, so, so a lot of these things – practitioners have to evolve into and I guess that's okay too but it just it was interesting like um, I'm glad a lot of clients gave us that shot to kind of build and then they've uh, developed and evolved with us yeah I agree I put a sentence in there that I know a lot of sole practitioners and I have a ton of respect for them but I also think that clients are well more more better served when they have a team behind them um, yeah and and the services part you asked about what other services you provide that that's growing. I, I don't know that twenty years ago people were looking for integrated tax, estate, cash flow, uh, you know, these various peripheral needs. Uh, it's far more intense now than than I think it was previously. Yeah, it was that evolution period from broker to Advisor. holistic financial planner, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So then you come back the next week with what you need to know about the Secure Act, and I suspect that this got some. Uh, people who didn't click on it because they were like, I don't know what it is, so I don't care. And then other people were like, oh, well, I don't know anything about it. What is this? I had to jump into it. Give us a little rundown on the Secure Act. Yeah, of course. So um, this piece was definitely a little bit more heady. Um, the Basically, it's what's happening. Some people, you can disagree or agree if you want, say that there's a huge retirement crisis in the United States. So when stuff like that happens, uh, sometimes it gets to Congress, and Congress is going to step in and basically say, hey, we're going to save the day. We're going to bring a solution. So the House put forward the SECURE Act. It had a lot of bipartisan agreement. Um, I think it was, what was it, 4, 17 to 3, the vote, um, when it went through the House. And it was basically these different tidbits within um, to create more advantageous 
retirement planning for the common American. So that looked like things like getting more people to participate in retirement plans, getting people more engaged, showing people how to convert retirement plans into lifetime income. And correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I, I think a lot of this comes from we had a day and age where there was a pension and it was really easy. People worked for Ford for 30 years. Um, maybe a bad example, and they, they had a pension that was going to be lifetime income, and there wasn't a lot of thought process there. Then we transitioned to defined contribution plans, 401ks, 403bs, and people had to start taking ownership, meaning they had to set the money aside, they had to pick the investments, and ultimately, they had to convert that nest egg into lifetime income. And that transition hasn't been very good. People left to their own devices, I guess, uh, aren't great savers. Um, so that was kind of uh, the premise of it. I mean, we can get into the details. I don't think the SECURE Act is going to create life-changing solutions, but maybe it's a step in the right direction. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm not totally sure yet if it will become law. You know, the House passed overwhelmingly. There's still a few different things they're going to be tweaking on it. Um, but overall, I think, you know, to get you do this in the article, but to get into the nitty-gritty – uh, the major takeaways that would impact the most people are increasing the required distribution age of retirement accounts from age 70 and a half to age 72. And I think that's a net-net positive. Mm -hmm. For those who don't need the money, it delays longer than having to uh, incur the tax hit and lose tax deferral on their gains. So it allows a little more compounding on the margin. And then um, for those uh, who need the money earlier than that, it's, it's immaterial. It doesn't yeah, have a, a, an impact. Um, I think the stretch IRA, um, I think your language was a little dramatic, but the death of the stretch IRA, but the, the way in which it's now kind of disadvantaging or, or, or decreasing the advantages mm -hmm. for children that inherit an IRA. Maybe you could talk about what it, it proposes to do there. Yeah, of course. So as it currently stands, um, the stretch IRA is a term that we use that basically when you inherit a retirement account and you're a non-spouse, that you get to stretch the distributions of that retirement account based on your life expectancy. Um, it becomes pretty favorable because uh, those distributions are taxable income. Um, and that taxable income, if you're a high income earner, could be um, pretty expensive. Um, the difference with what they're proposing here is that they would shorten the time of that distribution period. I think some people have said that they might shorten it to a 10-year period, which means you maybe, but when they come out with the exact details, you might have to take equal distributions over a 10-year period. So I don't know. Let's say that somebody inherited a $2 million account, um, and they're going to take 10% of that uh, per year over a 10-year period. Um, that's going to be a healthy addition to somebody that's probably in their peak earning years. So people don't like to pay more taxes. Uh, and that seemed to be the least favorable change. But it wasn't, uh, it didn't seem from the articles and the opinions that I read. Um, I don't know what the, what the Senate presented is. Are they calling that RESA? R-E-S-A? The Senate bill before yeah. reconciliation, correct? Yeah. So the um, that one has a little bit different. Um, it, it's taking the RMDs to seventy five. So I don't know. Do they smash those two together and come up with? I don't know what the motivation behind this is. Well, it's a pay for, um, and oh, so there's it. a little bit of lost revenue in the other segment, but it's better policy, and then they need to kind of offset it revenue wise. 
I think the takeaway I, I would offer anybody who's trying to figure out what this really means for them is never, under any circumstances, this is not a political statement. This is truly financial planning 101. Never assume anything that they're looking to do around all the nuances of retirement law, RISA, retirement accounts, Social Security. Never assume any of it is based on them making less money and you making more money. Of course. And so it's just there's so much complexity and variability that you can disguise things that on an actuarial basis are better for Uncle Sam than than for people. This stretch IRA thing is really kind of mystifying what what, what is in it for them. Um, I think that your analogy is important. Most people who would be accelerating withdrawals of IRAs upon inheriting them. So mom and dad die when, when mom and dad are 80 and the kid's getting his IRA at 40, well before their own normal retirement age, but they're spending it down in their 40s as opposed to waiting till longer. It's because they need the money, which means that they're not in a higher tax bracket. So what this is simply doing is just penalizing the only person who should not be penalized, which is those people who do not need the money so it can allow the investment to compound over time. And I think that's what they're saying is, yeah, well, we want that revenue quicker. But there is no way it is a significant enough amount of revenue to make it worthwhile to the Treasury Department to have such a bad law in place that would accelerate. Like if, if, if Johnny inherits mom and dad's money and needs it, He's going to spend it, and he's going to pay the taxes. Yeah, you don't have to make him spend that, it. That's right. There's no problem. But when someone doesn't need it, I don't think they should. it should be allowed to go. We have to remember, this money's never been taxed. Of course. So I'm fine with Uncle Sam getting paid on eventually. Uh, I think that what they ought to do, instead of forcing a 10-year period, is either extend it to 20, but, but not earlier than when the inheriting kid is themselves 40 or 50. A 23-year-old inheriting it and have to pay it over until they're 33 – you don't want Johnny spending that money. There, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, just, of course. I think it's really kind of silly. Yeah. So. I do have a question for you. We're going to move on from this, but what what do you think this motivation behind, and maybe it's that the the government believes that the American can't do it on their own, but all this push towards annuities and turning lump sums into lifetime income, is it trying to get back to a, a self-made pension? Well, or? no. How? That's a great I, – I, I understand where it's coming from, but let me ask you a question. Uh, how cynical do you want me to be in my answer? As cynical as you'd like to be. I don't believe it's the government doing it at all. I think it is the lobbying efforts Got it. of the retirement product industry. So they are alleging that out of defined benefit plans, what we would call pensions, into the avenue of defined contribution plans, which had an uncertain benefit to them, we uh, what we would generally view as 401ks, although there's other uh, similar you know structures, uh, that the great failure of the system has been that people don't know what they're going to be able to get out of retirement. So they're proposing mandating that people see what a lifetime income could be in, out of it. And, and it's couched, of course, in the very well-meaning rhetoric, as you pointed out, of we really need to help people that don't know any better know what the math of it is. But, of course, as we've seen with these own people's pension funds, they don't seem to have any idea either of what a uh, producible lifetime cash flow can be out of a particular lump sum when funding limits, uh, mortality, and, of course, most significantly, return on investment is such a big variable. All one knob has to do is get turned a little bit and it massively distorts the number. So my suspicion is that's driven by intensifying the effort 
to give people no ability in their withdrawal amount out of a lump sum. So they accumulate out 401 because that's what companies are offering. And then it's a kind of not very subtle way for the insurance annuity industry to backdoor a product sale yeah, of course. to middle class uh, retirement investors. Yeah, I, I like it because, well, I like it for this one reason. It brings it up in conversation and it bodes so well for our investment philosophy Yeah, because we're able to do this in a much better manner. Meaning dividend growth. Of course, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. All right, so the high cost of free, this was, I thought, the best article in, in uh, the month of uh, July. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and we laugh because Trevor brought in a guest writer, one of our analysts here in our investment solutions team. Uh, he's an amazing writer. He's an amazing writer and really great research analyst. But I guess we don't have to spend too much time on this just because uh, you don't want to necessarily have to speak to Kenny's own research here. But we would certainly point you back to it. This was the July 24th yes. edition, and it was titled The High Cost of Free. Trevor teed it up a bit, and then our uh, very own Kenny Molina wrote a piece. Give a little summary of what the takeaway is. Yes, Financial Weapons of Mass Destruction. Um, kind of the, the article that Kenny wrote is there's all this new financial technology, which they call fintech, and um, these things are aimed at making it easier for people to trade so there's companies like Robinhood that are offering free trades and what doesn't sound better than free um, but truly if you look at the the platforms and what they're doing they're not a good solution for people they're just like uh, the intern kind of wrote in here is it's an ad on Facebook that has bright colors and it's really attractive it walks him into it and then it kind of pushes him to investing in things that are trendy which usually means they're overvalued. Um, and honestly, the best analogy I can come up with, it reminds me of those uh, those vape smoking pens. The fact that they're making them in flavors like Bubblicious. Um, they're basically marketing these to, to, to children. Um, and I think that a lot of these tools um, are marketed to uninformed investors. And um, like Kenny points out in here, if you think you're getting something for free, you need to look a little deeper and find out how you're paying for that. It's a, a evergreen lesson, the notion that whether it's these particular vehicles that are somewhat technologized tools, so they're kind of bright and shiny things right now, but over the years there's been different investment products, there's you know uh, advisors, the position is not charging the client fees, this and that. Um, yeah, uh, always be careful of that which presents itself as being free. I think the best it can cost the most. The best description is was it E Trade in like was it the dot com when they had the baby, the talking baby? Yes. And it's like this is how easy trading is. Yeah. Even a talking baby could do it. Yeah, and you had a lot of NBA stars and stuff that were in the that were, you know, the focus of these commercials and these guys would go broke and the whole thing. But um it's one of the, I'm not gonna pick on anybody's particular show like anyone who's on in the mid afternoon on C N B C or anything, but those commercials on E-Trade that you refer to uh, were part of a series of things that I have been actually really offended by for about 20 years that uh, kind of create a sort of cartoonish picture of amusement surrounding something as serious as stewarding one's capital. And unfortunately, people find out the hard way. Uh, but yeah, I think it's something that is presented as being simple and easy. You have to kind of wonder, well, uh, you know, 
do I view my cardiology this way? Like, do I view family relationships I'm trying to invest a lot into this way? There's some things in life that are just serious need to be treated as such. Yeah, of course. All right, then the best last conclusion of your July of writing, Are You Covered?, which I guess would have come out right at the very end of July, and you talk about formulas for figuring out on insurance, kind of risk management, but maybe give us the synopsis of your uh, final article in July. Of course. So I review a lot of people's uh, prospective clients come in, they reach out, and the first thing they want us to do is, hey, take a look at what I'm doing right now and give me kind of some feedback, uh, some recommendations from there. And how many times have I seen that somebody was sold insurance for every single um, goal that they had? Your kids want to go to college? Insurance. You want to retire? Insurance. You want to buy a house one day? Insurance. So I do have a, a little bit of a pet peeve and an annoyance about that. Um, so one of the, the reasons I wrote this article is, if I'm being honest, there, there are a lot of, um, you can get pretty far with back of the napkin math with a lot of financial advice. I do think there's a ton of value in using the tools and the software and the systems to get some more of the exact math, but you can get a good range and a good idea of what you need with a a pen and your brain and um, a napkin. So this article is a lot about, hey, here's a good way where you can kind of check to see if you have enough coverage or if you have too much coverage And really, this is meant to be a conversation starter so that if someone that reads this says, I have 16 insurance policies, I'm probably telling them, hey, you should probably talk to a fiduciary. Yeah. Yeah, there's an old uh, cliche about when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, uh, you you know, your your, uh, theme earlier in our conversation about alignment, um, you know, sellers are going to sell. But... That the problem that you bring up here, I think, is very important. Is we can be critical of the incentives of some of these people and the results of overselling a product, sixteen policies, and yet that doesn't mean that there isn't a need for insurance. So how do you resolve that tension where you're being oversold but you still need some, and how do you get to the right amount? Because for our vantage point as planners and fiduciaries, we don't want people overinsured. We don't want people overpaying premium, but you also don't want people underinsured. Yeah, and I've seen the other end of the spectrum where I'm telling somebody that, hey, like, the rest of your life isn't promised to you. Something can happen, and, and honestly, I, I think it's disrespectful to your family if you don't have the appropriate amount of coverage. Um, and the premise of this article when it comes to life insurance is that, hey, let's go back to first principles. What is life insurance for? It's for if somebody passes away and their income was important to your family, it's a way to replace that income. So I just wanted to put the math behind that. I had a conversation once with a a colleague, a fellow advisor. He has a lot more uh, web traffic and and Twitter traffic than than we do. We have a lot bigger business than he does, but I I like him. But he was talking about why they don't do insurance because of the very problem you brought up, because they feel that the people are incentivized to oversell. And I pointed out that uh, there's a fiduciary commission and omission risk here on one hand a proper fiduciary should never be overselling insurance but on the other hand what kind of proper fiduciary leaves somebody without 
income replacement if a term policy is needed or a state tax coverage if an island is needed. So it has to be a happy medium. I think this article provides some really good rules of thumb, but it also concludes with the most important thing. It really can't be codified with an Excel spreadsheet. It's an advisor and a client that are sitting down together to have a conversation, get to the right goals, and as you say, always exceptions to the rule but uh, because there's nuances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is just a process, and, and I think um, you know it, it, people kind of being a little more intentional about it is very important. Yeah, of course, and, and that's what these articles are meant to do. It's not that, hey, you can just read these articles and then kind of DIY. The articles are, hey, here's conversations that you should have with somebody that you trust, and here gives you some context about how to have that conversation. And that's it. That's the month of July. So what is on, what's on the docket for August? What is Thoughts on Money going to be doing for us over the next month? Yeah, so August, um, one, of, one of the articles that's already been written was um, Pearls of Wisdom. I have a beautiful 10-month-old boy at home, and I was thinking, hey, he's going to grow up one day, and if I was going to give him some Pearls of Wisdom when it comes to finance, what would that look like? Um, this week, um, I guess the month of August is personal because I'm uh, in midst of perhaps buying a house. So this week is about um, how you take those pearls of wisdom and you actually apply them. How do you take uh, these financial truths and live them out in a real life situation? And then every other article, I have no idea. It's going to come to me that week. As you are so inspired. (laughs) Well, I've enjoyed having this conversation with you, Trevor. Congratulations on a great month of thoughts on money. Look forward to what August has to offer as well. Yes, I appreciate you joining us. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and it's not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.